Greetings, Creepy Readers. The second episode of the Creepy Reader Podcast begins in three, two, one. Well, hello there, Creepy Readers. It's me, your host, Coffin J, and welcome to the second episode of the Creepy Reader Podcast, the literary horror show made and named just for you. And back once again from the grave is our own Zombie Zack. Zombie Zack, welcome back to the Creepy Reader Podcast, my friend. From the grave I rise. Hey, thank you so much, Coffin J. I'm happy to be here, man. Oh, man, I knew you would be. I knew you would be. I knew I could count on you to come back again. Really quickly, I just wanted to kind of recap. As you remember, last week we chatted about Dean Koontz's Frankenstein, Prodigal Son, which is book one of the Dean Koontz Frankenstein series. So the whole world wants to know, and quite literally the whole world, because we have readers, or pardon me, listeners, all over the globe. I, I think I sent you that screenshot. Pretty impressive stuff. So thank you guys so much. You love me. You really love me. But everybody wants to know, have you read Frankenstein, Prodigal Son? You said you were gonna. You gave it a 4.2. 4.2 out of 5. And you better believe I am scheduled to read it. Wrong answer. If time permits. And I have to read it, though. I've decided I have to read it. I can't do the audiobook. Uh, just it's one of those books that I know I got to read it to like it, and sometimes it's going to be like that, and I'm okay with it. Um, but don't worry, creepy readers, I will let you know first thing when I'm done. Okay, gotcha. Well, you know what? We're going to let you off the hook, no pun intended, this time around. Okay, next time though, uh, well, you said two to three weeks, so you know what? You get a break next week. We're going to be chatting with your wife. So when we come back, perhaps you'll have read it by then. But one other question uh, we're going to be talking about Lois Duncan's I Know What You Did Last Summer today. Have you watched the movie as I requested? Yes, I definitely had time to watch a movie and did so. Okay, awesome. Zombie Zach doing his homework. A plus Zombie Zach. So last week, uh, before we did our first episode, Zach and I had come up with this whole thing. We're like, oh, we're going to do a segment where we each present a cool, creepy fact. And then we got into the podcast, completely forgot about it. And Zach was so excited about his point and he never even got to make it. So we're going to start it out this week. We're going to start with some creepy facts. Zach, would you like to start with your creepy fact? Creepy readers. I want you to know that your scar tissue takes quite a bit of vitamin C to keep itself sustained even long after you think it's healed. If you were to go through a severe vitamin C deficiency, some of your old wounds would reopen. The scar tissue would collapse on itself and you would suffer maybe greater than when you first received that nick, cut, or heartbreak. So be careful creepy readers make sure you're taking your vitamins i know i need to yeah i know that you don't take any vitamins and you really shouldn't but you know what i was thinking when you were telling me that which is really disgusting by the way um i'm gonna double up on my vitamin c personally but i kept thinking you know who had mad vitamin c deficiency pirates love that is a dinghy oh my god of course no wonder they had that tainted appearance i know exactly right and it just Sorry, you guys might hear my dog Luna shaking her head in the background. Sorry about that. Go lay down, baby. 
so yeah, cool fact. Very disgusting. I hope that you just start taking your vitamins after that. Moving on, I my okay, so just a fair warning to everybody out there. My creepy fact is maybe a little inappropriate. Um so I'm stealing it from an article uh, here. So I'll just, I'm not going to read you the whole article, but I'll kind of summarize it here. You can almost summarize it just with the name of the article, which is witches stole penises and kept them as pets in the Middle Ages. A 15th century manual says witches collected phalluses. Hell yeah. So just to kind of summarize things in the 15th century, there was a book that was a witch hunting manual written by a guy named it's either German. Oh, sorry. It's written by a German clergyman named Heinrich Kramer. Uh, and although his literature is typically regarded as foolish and misogynist, and that would be true, it happened to result in brutal murders of many women accused of witchcraft. So their first of many, uh, as they're calling it, dick torture witches. Uh, one of the things that they used to do is they used to apparently turn men's things, thingies, invisible, using their magic, of course. Kramer accounted that they could take away the male organ, not indeed by despoiling the human body of it, by, but by concealing it with some glamour, meaning they just snapped a finger and or did some weird voodoo, and then the wiener would just disappear. And then this is referring back to the title. The next mention of wiener abuse is far more entertaining. Kramer claims that witches kept disembodied penises as pets, Apparently the witches would steal the penis and I would want to, I kind of want to, like, how did that even go, right? I'm just like, did they go in there? Did they cut it off? Did they turn them invisible and then cut them off? Like, how did that whole process work? Anyway, they would steal the phallus and then they would store them in bird's nests and keep them alive by, quote unquote, feeding them oats and other grains. So that's pretty wicked. And apparently wieners have the same diets as horses. <laughs> So, and I know, I guess that's not really a creepy fact. I mean, there really was a book that said these things, but whether or not it was actually something that actually happened, I mean, who really knows? So, no, my penis is pretty creeped out. I mean, that brings a whole new definition to cockfighting, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can kind of feel a little like a shrivel and a hideaway thing kind of going on. So, maybe their magic's working on us right now. So without further ado, without further ado, let us steep our metaphorical tea bags into Lois Duncan's suspenseful masterpiece, if you can call it that. I know what you did last summer. They thought the worst summer of their lives was behind them. They make a pact. They'll never talk about it again, and they don't until the note. One short sentence is enough to shatter their lives. Someone knows what they did, and someone wants revenge. I know what you did last summer. So, uh, very nice back of the book. I think, based on that, I would pick this book up. And I don't know if I mentioned, but this book also was published... Way so, the movie is 1997. This book was published way back in 1970... Hold it, hold it, 1970... Wait for it! Three. So, it predates the movie by almost three decades, um, which, strangely enough, is 
almost how long it's been since the movie came out as well. So uh, as per usual, I, I, I want to delve, we're going to delve into the story, but we got to start off by chatting a little bit about the author, Lois Duncan, and she has a really interesting bio. Um, so we're going to chat a little bit about her. So Lois Duncan Steinmetz, uh, known as Lois Duncan, was born April 28th, 1934. She was an American writer, novelist, poet, and journalist. Uh, she's best known for young adult novels and has been credited by historians as a pioneering figure in the development of young adult fiction. In addition to her novels and children's book, uh, Duncan published several collections of poetry and nonfiction, including Who Killed My Daughter, which detailed uh, the 1989 unsolved murder of Duncan's teenage daughter, Caitlin. Uh, and after her daughter's murder, uh, Duncan distanced herself from the thriller and horror genres, shifting her focus to picture books and novels aimed for young children. And unfortunately, uh, Lois Duncan passed away on June 15th, 2016. So she certainly has kind of an interesting and tragic backstory. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. Could you imagine being like an author who wrote about these terrible things and then suddenly you're facing the terrible things that you wrote about? I, I really can't blame her for forsaking the genre. Yeah. I'm not sure how you would process your life from that point forward. You'd, I know you'd get out of the genre. You'd have to be someone else in my opinion. Yeah. Well, that's true. And not only that, but I, I guess when the movie came out, she kind of made a statement just saying that she thought it was kind of filth and she didn't approve. And one major difference between the book and the movie right off is that obviously the movie is a bit of a bloodbath and, um, only one person dies in the book. Uh, and since we're chatting about the movie, I also wanted to mention a couple cool, creepy facts about uh, the making of the movie or, well, I guess, you know, the director, all that good stuff. So the movie came out in 1997. It was written by Kevin Williamson of Dawson's Creek and Scream fame. Uh, fun fact, Kevin Williamson wrote the script before he wrote Scream, um, but he was unable to sell it. I can't imagine why. But after the smash success of Scream, Columbia Pictures immediately bought the rights to a screenplay for uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. And this is the reason why many fans and critics felt the film was far less clever and overall just a step down from uh, his innovative Scream scripts. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with that. I'm I'm. I was watching it thinking like, man, this is just, it's a step down. Like I can't, I almost cannot believe the order in which these came out. Um, but you can see a lot of the precursor stuff in terms of like the direction of the film. And I even a lot of what I feel like are shot choices and stuff in the film. Uh, I mean, he comes through, but it's just like an, it does feel like an early iteration. So, and I, you definitely get the Dawson's Creek feel. I, I, did you ever watch Dawson's Creek? <laughs> I did not. I've seen clips here and there. So like, yes, I, I, but I do feel like Dawson's Creek is one of those shows where you see it, even if you've never watched it, it just, you can tell it's Dawson's Creek just by seeing it. And this does have that same kind of vibe. I don't want to wait for our lives to be over. He's got a great theme song. I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I like Dawson's Creek. As a matter of fact, I might go revisit that. Um, but you know what? I like, I don't know if it's considered girly, but I like girly stuff. I don't really care. So that being said, I guess let's delve a little bit into the plot of the book. So I'll start with the chapter. We'll go 
you know, point by point, and you can kind of start to point out like where the differences are. And we can chat a little bit about those. <laughs> you know what? Real quick, did you notice that when the movie started, it had this really weird cover of Summer Breeze? Yeah, uh, yes, I did. <laughs> I was like, that's odd. And when it first started, I was like, I know this song. What the hell is this song? And then it was like, Summer Breeze. I was like, whoa. The book starts out with Julie, who is our main character, who in the movie is played by Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, And Julie receives an acceptance letter from Smith College, uh, which is the college she's been hoping to get accepted to. But she fails to notice the other note that has also arrived with the mail. It's a dream, she told herself, hopefully. I'm not really awake and standing here in the dining room at all. I'm lying in bed upstairs, asleep, and this is only a nightmare, like the ones I used to have back in the beginning. I'll close my eyes, and when I open them, I will wake up. It will be gone. The paper will be gone. It will never have been. So, she closed her eyes, and when she opened them again, the paper was still there in her hand, with a short sentence printed on it. I know what you did last summer. So... And that's the end of the first chapter. So we're starting off with a bang. And the first major difference, and back me up if I'm wrong, is really the start of the movie. So the book starts where you know that they did something last summer, but you have no idea what it was. And you don't find out until maybe halfway through the book what like the whole story of what happened is. So they really kind of build up the suspense and the wonder behind it. It's like, what the fuck happened last summer? I gotta know. So let's let's kind of lay out the characters so everybody knows who the hell we're talking about. So we've got Julie James. She's the lead. She's kind of like, she's a smart gal who maybe, ha- in, well, according to the book, maybe has a little bit of a troubled past. And after what they did last summer, she's kind of like reinvigorated her herself and decided to become more bookish and apply herself at school more. Um, you know, and she's got the whole prospect of college that she just got accepted to. And so she's really eager to escape the town um, where all of these terrible things happened. Uh, and another character is Helen Rivers. Is it Rivers or is it Shivers? <laughs> Shiver me timbers. Speaking of pirates, um, she is played by Sarah Michelle Geller, who is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I've got to notice poor Sarah Michelle. So she was also in Scream 2. Um and she also kind of her character took more of a backseat. So she's 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 got star power on television, but it doesn't look like she's got star power on the TV or on the on the movie screen. Sorry, girl. Um, and not only that, you've got half the cast of Scooby Doo here. Uh, because there's another character named Ray Bronson, and Ray is it's like Julie's kind of it's like her her dude, right? Um, and he in the movie was the one driving the vehicle, right? That's correct. And Ray is also, it's important to know kind of not of the same social status as Helen and Julie and the other character, Barry. Um, he's, you know, he's like a fisherman's son. They're a little bit wealthier, well to do have better futures ahead of him. He's kind of like, ah, you know, I'm going to work for the rest of my life. That kind of guy. Right out of the gate. So a little bit different for Ray in this. So in the book, um, his father is actually a professional football player who got injured two years or two years into his career. And so he's got and so he's got like the pressure. His dad wants him to be like a football star. And he's just not an athlete. You know what I mean? He would rather tutor the 
you know, tutor the football team than be on the football team. So kind of a different, um, I feel like Ray is probably differs the most from his character in the book. Um, but going back to Helen, sorry, we didn't really talk much about Helen. So Helen is Sarah Michelle Geller. She is kind of like our pretty girl. She's like a beauty queen at the beginning of the movie. She is participating in some kind of 4th of July pageant, which she apparently wins. Um, and that is, that's different from the book too. So in the book, yeah, she also has this kind of beauty queen quality to her, but she, it was named, um, so she had taken like junior pictures, uh, for her yearbook or something. And she apparently submitted those to, uh, some news station. It became what they call the golden girl of channel five. Thank you for being a friend. Now she just gets guest spots on like the news and stuff. I have a question about, uh, the book layout. So in the, you know, in the movie is clearly it's, uh, there's a formula to it, which is kind of like, you know, misleading, like maybe this guy did it. Maybe this person's doing it. Did this person do it? And uh, there's a character named Max, played by Johnny Galecki from Big Bang Theory. Um, and, and Roseanne. Yeah, he kind of comes across what happens, but he doesn't realize what's going on. He clearly likes uh, Julie, you know, is a little more <laughs> a little more cold to Ray and Barry. Um, so my question is, is that how the book is as well? Like, are these uh, these other characters kind of introduced as maybe this is the person doing all this? You know, there there's enough interaction that that you can be suspicious of them, or is it not played out like that at all? Um, so you're not. There are some suspicions among the group, but the suspicions are kind of they they kind of set up a few different characters as like potential. Hmm, these could be our bad guys, and we'll kind of get to that as we continue through the plot points. So, um. You know, moving on, uh, we are with Barry, um, and Barry receives a call at his dorm that Helen must see him later that day, uh, that they must talk about something important. He agrees, and later that day when he arrives, he's greeted not just by Helen, but also by Julie, who reveals uh, this note that she received, the I know you did last summer note. So they discuss what it might mean, um, who might have found out about this terrible thing they did, who might have sent this note. Uh, and quickly, Barry blames Ray, um, who is the Freddie Prince Jr. So who's Fred from uh, from Scooby-Doo? Let's scram. Right. So we got Fred and 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 Daphne. Um, and so they're blaming this guy. And, and Julie's basically like, first of all, Ray wouldn't do that. B, Ray moved to California. And, you know, he's not even here. And then Helen's like, no, Ray's back in town. I saw him yesterday. Uh, and then as Barry arrives, um, so Barry leaves. And then as he arrives at his fraternity house, it says that he cannot help but feel that he is being watched. Moving on from there, uh, Juliet leaves as well and arrives back home after meeting with Helen and Barry. She sees a car that she does not recognize in her driveway. In her driveway, uh, she thinks it might be Bud, uh, and Bud is this new boy who she's been going steady with. And <laughs> it was so funny in this book because it was written in the seventies. A lot of the vernacular is like mm -hmm. very old school, so it was like, "Oh, we we've been going steady for two years," you know what I mean? So in that way, I, it was kind of unbelievable for me because people just don't talk like that. And maybe they did back then, but they certainly don't talk like that now. Could you imagine if you said, "Oh, we're going steady," they'd be like fuck's wrong with you anyway yeah it'd be like going to what <laughs> yeah you're like you're going steady like down the down the road you go i'd have to ask him i'd say hey the world isn't steady what's going on with you you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> where are you going so it that was one thing that i kind of had to adjust to and that was kind of my main gripe when i first started reading it because i first started reading it and i was like dude i don't know about this book i don't know if i'm gonna be able to get through it it just 
it fit well first of all it has a ya feel so as i i didn't necessarily know this going in but it, it is kind of like a y like an early ya book like as i mentioned when i was talking about lois duncan uh, but it has all this old school language and it took me a second to get used to it but once you get past that it's it, it really it's quite readable um and I, I read it in a whole day so um so julia arrives back home she thinks it might be bud the boy who she's going uh, been going steady with but she goes inside and discovers that it is in fact ray bronson aka freddie prince jr and he is in fact back in town uh he tells her that it is his dad's car uh that he's been borrowing um because in the book or in the yeah in the book um so this was something that was kind of flip-flopped in the book and the movie so in the movie it was uh loser barry's car and ray was driving and in the book it was ray's car and barry was driving wow okay interesting yeah, so I don't know why they would flip-flop that. I feel like it makes more sense for Barry to flip out if he's the one driving, especially since he was probably the drunkest one of them all, which is how they played it in the book. Um, so he's got his dad's car because his car was, after the whole thing, he basically sold his car for very cheap, and he's like, I don't even want a piece of it. And he moved to California to work as like a fisherman. And I think that they kind of reflected that in the movie, too. He was kind of working in the fisherman, but he hadn't left town, I don't think. Um that's correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So he's back in town. Uh, he's got his dad's car. Um, the conversation quickly turns uh, to the events that transpired the previous summer. And again, um, who might be behind the note that she received? And Julie says that Barry thought it might be a boy at school. Um, Ray then asks about Bud, the guy Julie's seeing, and whether or not she loves So he goes, he goes, do you love him? And so at this point, they, you know, they after the whole incident, they kind of went they parted ways she was just like i've got to cut myself off from everything involving this in order for me to be able to move past it it's not working that well but that was her out of her the way she decided to tackle everything um so they're estranged for about a year at this point um so kind of an inappropriate thing to ask and and she basically is like no and he's like well does does he love you and she's like i don't think so um they argue uh that despite their chemistry uh you know julie and ray can't be together uh, so then awkwardly, Bud arrives, uh, because I guess they're supposed to go on a date or something like that. And there's this like awkward, but friendly interaction between, uh, Bud and Ray and then Ray leaves. Um, so there's, there, there was nobody like that, that she was seeing. And, and not only that, but you had mentioned Johnny Galecki, his character, who I think his name was Max is not a character in the book at all. You know, I really liked the way they used Max in the, in the movie though. So I'm kind of disappointed to hear he's there's not a character like that in the book because um, Max is so clearly about Julie at the very first scene. Uh, but there's a part where Barry comes up to him thinking that he's the one passing this note. And he's like, hey, I need to talk to you in private. And Max is like, what's wrong? This place ain't private enough for you. Yeah. And what's funny, too, is I, I don't know if it's a great cast. I love Johnny Galecki, but I just I don't know. I just can't see him as like a tough guy at all. You know, he just seems like kind of a nerd and he'll always just be a nerd for me. Like he was a nerd in Roseanne. He's a nerd in Big Bang. So I don't know about that casting choice, but you had. I'm well, but well, hold on. I've got to push back on you against oh. this. I would have thought the same thing, but I will say he, he played a guy who is a little outcast. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he's he he does want that you know he wants the girls he wants the group he you know what i mean and oh, he has he, it out for julie he's got a big crush on julie absolutely huge crush on julie um yeah he's a little you know he's clearly the kind of guy who's like i don't fit in with everybody you know what i mean like and i know that and he's pushing back against that but he's really not a nerdy character he he kind of plays a good outcast character well here and uh, i got to give him credit for that 
when you paint him as an outcast, I guess I can see that. I wasn't looking. I looked at him purely as like a red herring. So in that way, I was disappointed, you know, and I was like, I'm not going to be threatened by this dork. But as an outcast who's kind of like mysterious, I mean, I he didn't do bad. Maybe I'm being a little judgmental. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little flip floppy. Maybe I do like him. Who gives a fuck? Uh, but uh, but you had but you had said that you were disappointed that there was not a character in the book like him. And but there is. And this is what I thought when he first came into the movie. This is what I thought his stand in was going to be. So and this is perfect because we meet him in this upcoming chapter. So uh, we cut to Ellen or Helen, pardon me, um, which is Buffy. And she's laying by the pool. Uh, in her apartment and this new job as the Channel 5 Golden Girl has afforded her a nice paycheck. So she has been able to kind of get herself into a nice position financially. And she like dropped out of school and all that stuff. Um, so she's laying by the pool. She's tanning herself when uh, a guy named Collingsworth Wilson. Now, if I can say that 10 times fast, Collingsworth Wilson. I've always thought that Colin uh, Firth, his name has got to be Collinsworth, right? Collinsworth Firth. He's so much less attractive right there. That's fantastic. I didn't even make the connection between Collinsworth and Collinsworth. I'm just going to call him Colin Firth from now on. Um, but so this guy walks up and he's like, can I sit here on this nice uh, tanning bed thing next to you? And she's like, sure. So they strike up a conversation. We learn that he just moved into the apartment a few doors down. Um, Helen refers to Collingsworth, uh, to, to Colin Firth as Collie, which is terrible. If you were going to go by a short name, go by Colin, right? Collie. What are you, a, a puppy? Um, yeah, what a, he, what a dog name. I know. And he's very bold. He even makes a pass at her despite knowing that she is with Barry. Uh, so, you know, but he seems like a friendly enough guy. Um, they resolve basically to keep in touch. And, you know, Helen returns to her apartment. And upon returning to the apartment, she discovers a picture of a boy riding a bicycle taped to her door. You know what? The aspect of the kid and the bike makes this like a lot more sad to me. Um, and remind me, I think in the movie, it's like, so it's like an adult guy. That's correct. So uh, again, that's kind of a huge difference. Uh, from there, we get a chapter finally from Ray's point of view. Um, and it's filled with a lot of juicy bits. Um, so the chapter opens with Ray. He receives his own letter in the morning mail. Uh, it contains a newspaper clipping with an article about the 10 year old boy whose name is David Gregg, um, who was involved in the hit and run last summer uh, that resulted in his death. We learn that someone anonymously called the ambulance on his behalf. And this is the first time we're learning this in the book, uh, but that the driver of the vehicle was never discovered and remains at large. Uh, and it's here in the book that we finally learn what they actually did last summer and this is this is where uh, basically the beginning of the movie takes place in in the book where they kind of go back and they recount that big argument that they had roadside, like about what to do, you know, oh, you know, I'm fucking drunk. We're going to go either way. We're fucked. Right. You know, that's it's that whole part. And so they, again, resolve to make a pact and never to do anything. But there's no dumping of a body or anything like that. They just leave the kid there. Um, and apparently the ambulance comes, swoops him up and he dies on the way to the hospital. Um, so. That's the first time we kind of discover what the entire backstory is. It's such a difference in the actual main, like what happened to that. It really does change the whole tone because, you know, there was this guy, he seems to be grieving, you know, he's not, not very happy. kind of looks like he's going to jump off the ledge at the beginning and he doesn't, he gets hit. And is that the guy? What was that? Is that the guy who gets hit? Yes. That's okay. the guy who gets hit. And you know, for it to be a kid and for the kid to be like not dead right then 
uh, to the point that they're like, hey, we'll call an ambulance. Maybe like he'll be okay. Hopefully it works out. It's a lot darker. It's a, it's a big tone shift. And I mean, just from, uh, it makes the book much more interesting to me than the movie is. So it's kind of making me lean toward like, I would rather read that than watch the movie again. Um, but I'm not there yet. So keep on going. Well, I think the scene in the movie was pretty, I mean, it was out of everything in the movie versus the book. It was the most accurate for sure. So, um, that was like, I was like, oh, okay, this is something that I can actually grasp onto and be like, yes, these are similar. There is uh, a semblance of the actual story in this movie. Um, so anyway, flash forward, it's now Memorial day. Uh, Barry is having dinner with his parents and they're discussing plans for the summer. His parents want to take him to the East coast. Um, and he wants to go backpacking through Europe with his friends, uh, slash roommates. They disagree on what the right thing to do is and Barry departs back to the frat house where his roommates are playing poker. They give him a hard time about Helen, um, who's, he's missed a number of calls from, and just to kind of back up. So the dynamic between Helen and Barry is that, and you kind of see this in the, in the movie too, like when they're on the beach and she's laying on top of them, she's like, we could just go elope and we could get married and have a great future. And, um, so but in the book, we really get to see what's inside Barry's head. And he's like totally overwhelmed by it. He's kind of got like a lot of side bitches. And so it's a totally a one-sided relationship. Anyway, so he goes to the phone, but we don't hear the conversation at all. Instead, we skip and we pick up with him afterwards. Um, and basically, he's deciding to take a walk on campus, almost like he needs to go to get a breath of fresh air. The presumption is that he's just broken up with Helen. Uh, and as he walks, there are these fireworks rocketing uh, into the sky in the background from this Memorial Day thing that's happening downtown, uh, or not downtown, but at the college campus. And something terrible happens to Barry. Barry followed the sidewalk to its end and crossed the street and entered the athletic field. At the far end of it, the bleachers loomed a dark mass against the sky. They were thrown into abrupt silhouette as another rocket went up into the stadium, and the audience burst into a roar of approval. Barry stood still, trying to accustom his eyes to the sudden changes from light to dark. Then suddenly, a flashlight went on immediately in front of him, the beam directed straight into his face. Hey, what the hell? He raised his hands to protect his eyes. There was enough noise from the fireworks so they would not have known that the next sound was a shot if he had not felt the bullet tear through his stomach and into his spine. Now, I know that this doesn't happen to Barry in the movie, and I feel like what happens to Barry doesn't happen until much further in the movie, so I don't know if we should talk about it. Just go ahead and talk about it now. What happens to Barry in the movie? Um, Barry ends up getting killed in the movie, and but there is a moment at the beginning of the Well, I shouldn't say the beginning, but early on in the movie... Um, Barry's kind of the first one to get attacked by this like fisherman dressed person uh, who seems to know what they did last summer. And he runs him down in a car and like crashes Barry through like a little fishing shack. And like Barry's kind of messed up and laying there. And the fisherman stands over him, pulls out the hook, you know what I mean? Just kind of just kind of makes his presence known, but doesn't hurt him or kill him. Um, later in the book, he is actually killed or I'm sorry, later in the, in the book, later in the movie, he's actually killed. 
um, and kept on ice. Kept on ice. I don't see. I didn't get that far. I was trying. See, I didn't get to finish the movie. Damn it! You have to fill me in. Yeah, I'm kind of excited because I don't remember like what the backstory is for the fisherman guy, and so I'm excited to learn what that is. Um, so yeah, poor Barry. He's been shot through the stomach into the spine, so things are not looking too good for that guy. Uh, so skipping forward, Ray learns about Barry from his father. The fate. Uh, the fate of Barry from his father, uh, the ex football star, and calls to let Julie know. Uh, meanwhile, Helen is down at the station doing her Golden Girl of Channel 5 thing and giving away the report. And that's when she hears the news anchor deliver the news about the shooting. Uh, so she learns it right there live um, and still has to go on and do her bit. So once her TV thought is done, she completely loses it. She's crying inconsolably. Um, and at that time, we then cut again uh, in the book to Collingsworth, to Colin Firth. And we learn, uh, and he learns of the news as he sits watching in his apartment. He's apparently tuning in just to see Helen because she's foxy and he's got a crush on her. Uh, so concerned for his new friend, he goes down to the station and finds uh, a weeping Helen and offers to take her to the hospital to see Barry. She accepts and uh, upon arrival at the hospital, they find out that Barry is not dead. He is in surgery. His family is really cold to the pair. Like, you know, his dad is a nice enough guy, but his mom is kind of just like, you know, you shouldn't be here. Family only. It's also revealed uh, at this point to um, the audience that it was not, according to Helen, it was not her uh, that spoke to Barry on the phone earlier. So now we pose this question. It's like, okay, who was on the phone with Barry then? So we skip ahead and Ellen, uh, Helen wakes up. Uh, she's, so she goes home. She wakes up the next morning in her bedroom and she's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got any sleep at all after the previous night. She recalls the events of what happened. And we learned that, um, you know, she found out that Barry has indeed survived. They removed the bullet, which was lodged in his spine, but they're unsure of the permanent damage that he suffered. So they don't know if he's going to be able to walk again. Um, and they likely won't know for quite a while. At that point, there's a knock at the door, which turns out to be uh, Collie um, checking in on her. And basically, it, he is convinced that Barry's shooting could not have been an accident and that he must have been caught up in something bad, possibly even illicit drugs. That afternoon, um, Julie leaves the school. Uh, so she went to school that next day. So she leaves and finds Ray parked in his old parking spot that he used to park in when they were attending school together. So in the book, he's a year older than her. So he's been off, um, not to college, but he's been out of high school for a year and she's just in her senior year. I don't know if I had established that. Um, so they drive to this old place where they had um, the picnic. It's different from the book in the book or pardon me from the movie in the movie. It was like a beach in this place. It's like a foresty kind of area, a little bit up in the mountains. Uh, so they go there um, after first. So He's like, so, you know, we need to talk. Should we go to this place? And based on what happened there, she's like anywhere but there. So and then they go to this like ice cream place. And it's kind of this bizarre passage in the book where it's like the ice cream place was having like two for one strawberry or uh, banana splits for the day. And everyone had heard the news. So basically it's like it's kind of a funny thing. It's like they roll up and then see how busy it is. And then the next scene, they're just like, well, I guess we're going here. And so they did end up going to the, uh, you know, to the spot in the woods. Um, so they go there and they are chatting about everything. Ray reveals the newspaper clipping that he received and he's determined and he, he's basically come to the, the determination that Barry's shooting was no coincidence as well. He also tells Julie about the picture of the kid on the bicycle that was taped to Helen's door. She had not previously heard that. And after much discussion, um, Julie surmises that the only people 
that could hate them enough to kill them or to attempt to kill them would have to be those closest to the dead boy, uh, David Gregg. And those would be what his family, his parents. So Julie reviews the newspaper clipping, which Ray has kept in his pocket and finds the address for the boy's family home. And she's like, that's not far from here. So they decide to go and speak with David Gregg's parents, despite the dangers that could possibly await. And so I know that this kind of happens in the movie. Sort of. Uh, they they do come to the conclusion that like he's got to have some kind of family. Uh, and, and maybe even, even if they're not the ones messing with us, they might know someone who was close to him who would have been hurt by his death so much. Um, and so they go out and they find his sister, a character named Missy, very fun character. And Missy is, kind of informs him, oh, you know, he really didn't have much friends. And, you know, he, they were like, there's got to be someone. And she's like, well, there was this one guy that came around and comforted me for a while. And we were kind of a thing, but it didn't work out. And they're like, what's his name? And it's Billy Blue. My name's Billy Blue. Um, okay. So that's, and then here's another departure as well. So in the book, when they go to the house, um, there is a, so they arrive at the Greg residence. Um, that's the name of the little boy. So Julie is afraid. Um, you know, she's like, what, what if it was the Gregs who shot Barry? Well, we'd keep them from shooting us as well. Would they do it in broad daylight? Would they not care? Cause they're so pissed off. Um, uh, the only person home turns out to be David Gregg's older sister. And this is the Missy character, but in the book, her name is Megan. Uh, and very different. So kind of similar, like similar characters ish. I feel like, um, Melissa or Missy in the movie is a little bit more mysterious, but she does offer to make tea and stuff like that. And they just came up with some bullshit story about our, our cars broke down. We need to use your telephone. And because of the time, you know, nobody, nobody had cell phones. So that made sense. You you couldn't pull off that storyline anymore. Um, but anyway, uh, and another interesting fact, I don't know if you realize this, but Missy in the movie is played by Anne Heche, who recently passed away. Uh, you, you heard about that whole thing? Yes, I did. And I was kind of surprised to see her in there. And I was like, oh, man, this is like this is like some of probably her her not I wouldn't say her early work, but um, probably like before she really did some of the biggest stuff she did. Correct. Um. Definitely early work. So she, her, she's probably best known, and I, I'm not like an expert on Anne Heche, but she's best known for being in the frame, like frame by frame remake of Alfred Hitch, Hitchcock's Psycho, which I think came out like 1998 or 1999. So she's best known for playing the role of Marion Crane in that. Kind of a tragic thing, and I didn't know she was in this movie either. I was like, hey, that's Anne Heche, R.I.P. So anyway, uh, they make up some mumbo jumbo. Ray goes to use the phone. So he disappears. Megan welcomes them in and they kind of get to talking. Uh, Julie learns that Mrs. Greg, so this young boy's mother, um, is now in like a hospital. And they didn't really say what kind of hospital. I don't know if it's like a loony bin or some type of behavioral health facility. But basically after her kid died, she just couldn't take it anymore. So she winds up, you know, in this thing and and her husband has been basically living down there so that way he can he can be there to support her. And so, you know, this is obviously heartbreaking to Julie, who's like, oh, my God, we didn't just fucking kill a kid. We destroyed a family. You know, so she expresses, um, you know, the grief of losing her brother. 
Ray returns and urges Julie that, hey, it's time to leave. We got to go. And by this point, they, they feel fairly certain that the Greggs have nothing to do with it. You know, uh, Barry's attempted murder, the notes, nothing like that. But uh, not before Ray points out that there was a man's shirt hanging on the clothesline outside. If it were just Megan, why would there be men's clothes? And additionally, he notes that the house has a fresh coat of yellow paint. And there would be no way for a woman of Megan's stature to be able to paint that on her own. So there's a little bit of like, hmm, uh, a little bit behind that. But it's it's kind of fleeting. I'm Obviously, I didn't really think too much of it. I just thought another red herring. Uh, so a little bit different interaction. How does it, how does it leave off in the movie? What like what what has the interaction leave off? Does it leave off on a good note? Or are they kind of like like what what happens? Well, uh, it seemed like there's a little bit of an issue uh, like Missy, you know, talks about Billy Blue, and once that gets brought up, they're like, "Okay, this must be the guy we're looking for." Oh, we got the call from AAA. We don't want to miss them. And she's like, "No one comes knocking on my door anymore." You know, why don't you guys hang out? And it's kind of a, it's a little bit making fun of a country bumpkin esque. You know, like these are small town people, and she's like, "I'm pretty lonely out here by myself since Billy Blue don't come around." And they're like, "Oh, we gotta go." And she comes out. And they're getting in the car and their car starts up. And like when they do that, there's a bit of a jump scare. And Missy is like, hey, you forgot your, uh, you know, whatever she forgot. And she's like, uh, you know, interesting. Your car started up, huh? Crazy how that happens. And they use Missy pretty well. Like she's kind of a scary, odd yeah. character. Yeah, she but, is odd. But you can tell that the the person in the, the fisherman's coat is not her. Right. Um, but they are, they use her in little jump scary ways or, you know, she's like, got this like whole wilderness thing where she like kills animals and traps them up and everything. So it's kind of like, uh, maybe she, she's capable. Gotcha. And so after that, um, this is where, so you'll recall, um, in the movie, there was that girl named Elsa who is, uh, Helen's sister. And she like works at that department store with her. She's that really, really pretty girl from Billy Madison. Yeah. Veronica Vaughn is one piece of ace. And Mortal Kombat. Oh, yes. Bridget. Yes, and she's Bridget such an Wilson. asshole in the movie. Oh, she is such a bitch. And so this is where, and she was mentioned previously in the book, but um, this is kind of where we get, a l- this is where essentially we meet her. So um, Ray and Julie, after leaving the Greg residence, head over to Helen's apartment uh, and to meet with them or to meet with her and to kind of discuss the situation when they arrive, uh, Helen's sister, Elsa is there. Uh, she stopped by to see ha- how Ellen is doing after Barry Barry's, uh, shooting. Um, and so in this book, Elsa is not a beautiful, tall, bl- blonde bombshell. She's like the complete opposite of her sister. She's kind of this trollish, bitter girl who just feels like her sister has the world and she has nothing you know she's got the great job and the hot man and all that stuff and so she's just kind of she's debbie downer so uh they basically all agree uh so elsa leaves and they all agree that the saga of recent events can't be coincidence uh even julie who's been in stark denial this whole time about the situation like she won't just believe that someone's after all of them she has her suspicions but she won't truly uh believe it they determine uh they need to essentially gain access to barry in the hospital where he's not allowed to have visitors so they can find out uh if he a if he saw a shooter and then b 
about the mysterious call who was on the other end of the call. So they decide that Ray will call uh, Mr. Cox, Mr. and Mrs. Cox, and see if he can come visit them. Um, Mr. Cox answered. He is denied visitation. Um, so Ray essentially tries to get as much information as he can and learns uh, that basically the only thing Barry has said since he woke up is that it was, in fact, Helen Rivers that he spoke to, or Helen Shivers. Shiver me timber. So anyway, that's a little bit suspenseful. Uh, so they leave uh, Helen's apartment, and Julie and Ray basically agree that someone must be lying. It's either Barry, Helen, or Mr. Cox, and why the hell would Mr. Cox lie? Julie theorizes that perhaps Barry only thought it was Helen on the phone, uh, but that maybe it was someone just pretending to be Helen, which is kind of Scream-esque, right? Even though it's not in the movie, it feels a little Screamy, Scream 2 or like Scream 3 to me, right? Where he's able to yep. copy anybody's voice. Um, so she goes as far as to say that it could be Elsa, Helen's bitch of a sister. Uh, she thinks maybe Elsa somehow found out about the accident. Um, you know, maybe... Helen speaks in her sleep or talks in her sleep or something like that. And, and she's using it a way to get back at El Helen to hurt Helen. And there's really no better way to hurt Helen than to hurt Barry. Um, so the next day, Ray sneaks in, uh, to the back door of the hospital, managed to get inside Barry's room. Barry's awake, but he's hazy. He's kind of pissed off and feeling bitter because, you know, he feels like he might not be able to walk again. He can't feel his legs. Uh, they make small talk. Ray asks Barry about the phone call. Barry tells him he admits that it was not Helen who called him. Uh, rather, it was another girl he's saying, and they made plans to meet at the stadium at the school and watch the Memorial Day fireworks, and that he cut through the athletic field as a shortcut. Uh, he reveals that there's $50 missing from his wallet, and that his would-be murderer was just a robber with a gun. So just wrong place, wrong time. Uh, Ray takes him at his word and leaves the hospital. And at this point, we find out um, from Barry's point of view that he's lying it wasn't actually Helen, nor was it another girl, um, as he claimed. It could not have been true. It could have been another girlfriend on the telephone. Pam did sometimes call him, and so did Debbie and some of the others. It could as easily have been one of them that night calling to ask him to meet her at the stadium. Or it could have been Helen. That was whom he had expected. That was why the strange voice had disconcerted him so completely. Hello, Cox here, he had said, and the voice, low-pitched and muffled, as though the speaker was talking through a handkerchief, had said, Barry. Hello, who's this? A friend, the voice said. A friend who knows about something and needs to talk to you about it. About what? Barry had known that he was reacting stupidly, but he could think of nothing else to say. What are you talking about? Oh, I think you know. Something that happened last summer. There had been a pause. What would you say if I told you I had a picture? A picture of what? Barry had asked, his stomach nodding. An action picture with a car in it. And a bicycle. Just part of a bicycle. Would you be interested in seeing it? No, Barry had said. I wouldn't. Perhaps there might be other people I could show it to. The voice had been calm and thoughtful. Like, for instance, the boy's parents. I should think they might be interested. But anyway, so essentially the call was some mysterious voice. Very Ghostface-esque. What do you think about that? Was there any call? Is there any calls in the movie? Um, There was calls, but not like that. There was nothing from the killer to them. Um... That's very interesting. I'm I'm kind of like 
It, it makes me think that it's uh, Collinsworth. So I think I'm going to throw that prediction down. But you know, he might have just been, a, you know, red herring, as you said. Is there? Do you feel like at this point in the story, you knew Barry's motivations to be lying? I just think he wants the whole thing to go away. I okay. think that he doesn't okay. want to talk about it with anybody. So he's just kind of burying everything and deciding that it doesn't exist. That's, I mean, I think they probably could have done that a little bit better, but that's my impression. I, yeah, I'm getting the sense that he's a little bit like caught up in everything and he's almost, it's like a whirlwind. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm shot. He's now, overwhelmed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's just like, I, he can't even process it to get it out to the people. Uh, but yeah, I don't think as if, from a writing perspective, the fact that he's lying to them right now, unless there's like good reason for it, I don't understand that decision from the character. Uh, but go ahead. I'm interested to see where it goes. So uh, as Ray's leaving the hospital, he bumps into Bud and they decide to walk down to the pharmacy together. Uh, Bud gets a sandwich. Ray gets a coffee. They talk about Bud's time in Nam. So Bud is a little bit older than Julie if he's been in Nam. And you have to remember this was this was written in the 70s. Um, they talk about Barry. They talk about Helen um, and they talk about Julie. Ray tells Bud that he is going to try and get Julie back if he can, um, which is pretty bold. Barry responds by laughing and betting him that Julie won't actually go to Smith at the end of the summer. Uh, when questioned why Julie would decide such a stupid thing, Bud insists that she will stay in town for him and that she just does not know it yet. Uh, so feeling uncomfortable, Ray leaves. Mm -hmm. He tries to call Julie, but the line is busy. Uh, so he leaves the pharmacy so flustered that he does not notice the car that pulls out behind him and follows him all the way home. So after that, Helen receives a call from Ray, uh, filling her in about the robbery and Barry's condition. Her fears are assuaged and she joins Collie at the pool for a swim. Uh, there she's confronted by this neighbor bitch who I guess are a bunch of school teachers that hang out at this or who live at this apartment just by hang out by the pool on a Saturday. Uh, and they, they call her a pig, um, essentially telling her that she needs to save some men for the rest of them. Um, which is, it was kind of an odd passage because it plays no hand in anything other than just to say that these bitches by the pool, you know what? I think it says something about how other people view Helen, you know, it kind of speaks to Elsa's attitude about Helen in the book, I guess a little bit. So it reinforces that, but I'm still like, damn, these bitches are harsh calling her a pig. Uh, following this, uh, Collie reveals that he actually has a date that evening and Helen's kind of like, oh, she's like, am I feeling a little bit jealous about this? There are other girls in the world beside the ones at Four Seasons, Collie told her. This particular girl I'm seeing tonight is one I knew before I ever met you. Oh, Helen said awkwardly. I didn't realize. You don't realize a lot of things, Collie said quietly. You don't know what I do when I'm not with you, or where I'm from, or what I'm interested in, or what I think about, or what courses I'm planning to take this summer. You don't know how I work, or how I live, or who the people are that I care about. You haven't been interested enough to ask. Everything we've ever talked about since the day we met has been you, and of course your friend Barry. So he suddenly becomes a little bit threatening, right? I'm yeah, like a getting bit. dark vibes. Kinda, yeah, a little yeah. bit dickish, like you know what? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and and Helen kind of notices that as well, and she's she's a little like, oh, okay, well, and she's conflicted because he's going now on this date. So from there, uh, we and we're getting here to the end. So Mrs. James, that's Julie's mom, um, is sitting on the front porch enjoying an evening cup of coffee when she feels a sense of foreboding. 
Apparently, she's someone who has always had whims when bad things were going to happen. Um, she feels as though something bad will happen and, and that it will happen tonight. And meanwhile, uh, at the Rivers residence, Elsa is bitching again about Helen and how perfect and selfish she is, saying that she is glad that Barry got shot and that maybe it would teach Helen not to be so self-centered. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rivers wonder where they might have gone wrong. Simultaneously, at the hospital, Mr. and Mrs. Cox learn that Barry has moved his left foot um, and will not suffer from permanent paralyzation. The nurse tells them, though, that Barry wishes to be left alone because he has, quote, done something terrible and needs to get it straightened out before it's too late. Uh, in the hospital room, Barry dials Helen. Uh, the phone rings 10 times, and we find out that uh, Helen hasn't answered it, and sitting in Helen's living room is an unnamed man, a man with yellow paint on his hands. So at this point, so we've got the guy with the, you know, with the yellow hands, yellow paint hands, and Helen hears her phone ring from outside the pool. She makes her way upstairs. As she gets through the door, a voice asks her if she always leaves her apartment door open. And the voice belongs to, who do you think? Uh, I want to say Colin, um, but, you know, Bud is acting weird too. I, it might be Bud. Okay. The voice belongs to Collie. Correct answer who demands that Helen sit and listen to more details about his date that evening with the redhead. So this is how that goes. Sit down, Helen, over there on the sofa. Now, about my date. I told you, Helen said, that it doesn't matter. Don't interrupt. I know what you told me. The thing is that I'm going to do something interesting to my date tonight. I'm going to kill her. You, you're gonna do what? She knew that she could not have heard him correctly. But the words had been so clear, she stared at him blankly. You're making a joke. And I don't think it's funny. Oh, it's not funny at all. Collie's face was set and expressionless. Killing people is never funny. Whether you do it with a gun, or a grenade, or a bomb, or with your bare hands, or if you run somebody down with a car, a little kid on a bike going home to his mother, that's not funny either. Not for the kid, and not for his family. Mm hmm. So here we are. It was called. Uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it, exactly. Exactly. So he reveals that he got all twisted up. Uh, so this is coming from Collie. Collie reveals that he got all twisted up when he was over in Nam, came home to find that his half brother was dead, his stepmom in the loony bin, and his whole family torn apart. He did some digging and eventually learned that a bouquet of white roses was sent anonymously to David Gregg's funeral and that the flower shop owner told him it was a redhead girl. That mixed with the knowledge that the 911 call had come from a teenager led him to believe he was after high schoolers, which eventually led him to Julie. Uh, once he had figured that out, he sent a note to her to see if he got a reaction. It did get a reaction, uh, did the trick. And that is how he come, uh, came to learn about the other's involvement. So he lured Barry to the athletic field and shot him. Um, Helen is horrified, as you can imagine. Uh, but she's able to get away and lock herself inside the bathroom and eventually escape out of the window, uh, which is on the second story. So quite a few revelations in that chapter. Um, I'm just going to keep... Well, I, I guess, what do you think about that? You kind of called it, man. It's Collie. Yeah, I, I I feel like I called it, and I feel like there there could be another twist here, and I feel like Bud and Collie could be the same guy if I'm remembering everything you've told me correctly so far. It seems like there's some separation between those characters, and he might be the same guy. Um, but that's very interesting. 
So in the movie, there is a there's there is this kind of revealing turn. Um, it's but it is a misdirection as well. So uh, Julie goes back to Missy, the sister, and is like, you know, I need to tell you that I killed your brother. Your brother didn't just, you know, die. Whatever he, it was me. It was my, me and my friends. And the sister does not really want to hear it. She's like, listen, I already did the insurance paperwork. (laughs) Like, I'm not, don't want to hear this. You know, here's a note that he had left. He was going to kill himself anyways that night. And the note seems to be in his handwriting. And Julie kind of pieces together, oh, this is, it's, you know, it's not who we think it is. Um, And she goes to the, she goes to the fishing dock where, uh, Ray is and Ray is like, Hey, you know, Hey, come up on the boat and like, we'll talk about it and figure things out. And she looks down at mm. the boat's name and it's Billy blue. And so to her, this is, Oh my God, you're the killer, which there was already obviously some suspect. There was some Barry thinking Ray mm-hmm. did it. It sounds like it was the opposite in, in the book. Um, and so she begins running from him and it's a very quick turnaround to the next reveal, which is that, no, it's not, it's not Ray. It's the father of the girl who was killed by the man that they killed in the car, which is another, I mean, so already be, and that's why I was saying it's such an interesting change from earlier because killing a kid who's innocent, um, it's just a horrible act. I mean, it's just, there's no redeeming what in the movie they've killed an adult who was about to kill himself because a year previous he had killed his girlfriend, uh, by accident. And so, so it's almost like a, a repeated, like, I know what you did last summer. Right. So it's almost like somebody knew what he knew what he did last summer. I know what you did Um, to the guy who I knew what he did too. You know what I mean? Last summer. Exactly. Um, so I mean, so an interesting twist, but the one in the book, uh, packs a bigger punch. So um, I want to wrap this up real quick. Okay. Uh, so back at the James household, uh, Mrs. James is trying to convince Julie not to go to the movies tonight with Bud. Um, the doorbell rings and Bud arrives. And it is in this moment that Julie realizes that she doesn't really want to go to the movies either. Uh, she breaks the news uh, to Bud that she doesn't want to go, but invites him in to stay and watch TV if he wants. He insists that no, he doesn't want to, and that she at least walk him out to the car if she's going to give him the brush off. Uh, here we learn that Bud's actual name is Collingsworth Wilson. Ha <laughs> ha, yes. Julia walks him out and they sit in the car where he reveals the origins of the nickname Bud. Uh, as it turns out, it was something that his brother David used to call him. Uh, he unveils his whole master plan and proceeds to choke Julie into unconsciousness. Um, and this is where it kind of gets odd with the book. Uh, so, I mean, it literally wraps it up. At, so it's at the height of everything and then it wraps it up in two pages. <laughs> so, uh, luckily, Julie wakes to the sound of Ray's voice. He apparently arrived in the nick of time to save Julie and knock Collie unconscious. He tells Julie that he was tipped off by the yellow paint on Bud's hands at lunch, but he didn't make uh, the connection until later. Barry had gotten a hold of him as well, telling him that he wanted to break the pact. Uh, and now to put a bow on everything, the cops arrive after being contacted by Helen, who escaped out the window. Uh, Julie and Ray resolve themselves to telling the truth about what they did last summer. And we leave off with a ray of hope, uh, no pun intended, that Julie and Ray might rekindle their relationship. And that's how the book ends. So I think I should wrap up how the movie ends at this point. Uh, So it was just revealed that Billy Blue is the name of Ray's boat that he works on. Um, And so Julie's like, oh, my God, it's you. She starts running away. 
and Billy's chasing after her. He's like, I can explain, you know, and uh, kind of a mysterious man on the dock, you know, kind of takes down Billy, realizing he's chasing, uh, he's chasing this girl around. He's like, hey, get on my boat, you know, and when she gets on the boat, she realizes, oh, this is the person who's killing us. She sees all the equipment. She sees there's a room in the boat that has all the newspaper clippings and all this stuff. And it was earlier revealed that, you know, the, there was this woman who was killed by the man who wanted to kill himself and ended up getting hit by the car that night. Uh, he wasn't really dead when they had hit him. So they ended up throwing him in the water, but he was still alive. He was kind of fighting for it. And the, the dad was just like super irate that they, you know, they didn't even fully kill him. Um, and he's kind of like, I'm trying taking vengeance for my daughter and killing you guys for kind of doing what he did to my daughter, that kind of thing. Well, Ray happens to get on the boat before the guy is able to, uh, undock the boat. And so Ray and Julie fight him on the boat. Essentially, uh, they find their friend's bodies down in the ice where normally the fish would be stored. And right before he gets a good kill in, um, a line basically takes his hand, pulls him all the way up to the top of the mask, rips his hand off, and it's it's wrapped around his leg as well. And so it kind of like flings him into the water uh, while they're out at, at sail in the middle of the night. Um, when they get back to the shore, the cops are there. They're like, well, do you know why this person would want to kill you? And Ray and Julie both go, no. Oh, um, so obviously way different ending there, um, and which spawns a few sequels to this movie, if anyone is interested in those. Also, the movie ends, everything seems settled, everything seems fine. Julie's getting in the shower at what appears to be a college, and uh, in the fog, someone has written on one of the windows of maybe a shower door, and it says, I still know. I, I would recommend this book uh, if you can get past the whole dead daughter thing. I think it's a good book. I will give it I'll give it a 2.5 hooked hands out of five. I think even though there's no hook hands in the book, what would you give the movie? Now, I'm going to give the movie some points for like some 90s nostalgia because, man, does it have a lot of that. I mean, it's it's very silly and stuff, and I don't think I should credit it with the plot or associate it with the book so much. Um uh, but I would give it, yeah, maybe a 2.7 or maybe a 2. Point, maybe 2.8 on its best day if you're in the right mood um, to recommend watching it out of five. So, Gotcha. I don't know if I want to change my rating or not. So the thing, like I said, is just as more of a YA book. So it's not something that I would normally pick up. But that being said, I am challenging myself to read different things. And I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Uh, so creepy readers, if you're interested in checking out Lois Duncan's I Know What You Did Last Summer. You've got the go-ahead from old Coffin J. Of course, I do want to do some shout-outs before we say goodbye. Um, a couple of people that I missed last time. Well, not missed, but mostly mispronounced. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to have to move your stuff to the next episode. And they were, of course, gracious and wonderful about it. Um, but first of all, to the slashy underscore reader, whose name is Erin with an E. Uh, she lives in South Korea, uh, and we bonded over Selena Quintanilla, not Gomez. Um, so just want to say, hey, thanks for all the love and appreciate you listening to our podcast. Um, 
also would like to say a big what's up to underscore Ashley underscore Oriana. That's O-R-E-L-L-A-N-A. And she posts these really cool bites of horror on Instagram uh, where she makes, and I love the format. It's so cute, like little spooky book suggestions. Like she did one, it was like stories about the woods, Uh, horror tattoo ideas, short stories that she writes, um, horror video game suggestions and more. So if you are not following her, you should go follow her uh, for her little bites of horror. Um, Last but certainly not least, I want to say hello um, and a huge thank you to CB underscore daddy, that's S-E-A-B-E-E underscore daddy underscore, um, who has been a supporter since day one uh, of the podcast. Um, He's a wonderful guy. Uh, Him and his wonderful wife have recently gone through some hardship and they have a lot of medical bills. Um, So I am going to link a GoFundMe in our description. Um, They're wonderful people. So if anybody has a few dollars to spare and they want to help out, I know that both I and they would be incredibly thankful. Anyway, plans uh, for next podcast. We Speaking of Grady Hendrix, we're going to be chatting about Horror Store uh, with Zach's wonderful wife, Caitlin. So Zach, you get to take a break next week. I'm going to hang out with your wife instead. I hope you don't mind. I might be there listening. I really think that's all we have for our second episode, folks. So, um, Zach, thank you so much again for joining us, for rising once more from the grave to grace us with your zombie presence. From the grave I rise. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, creepy readers. Um, it's always been my pleasure. And as always, thank you, Coffin J. What a wonderful host you are. Oh, Zach, you flatter me. You really do. Uh, until then, keep reading, creepers. Creepers.